Welcome to our journey. Our journey toward a more perfect union. Our more perfect union is an experiment, a grand experiment in something we all cherish, democracy. Welcome to our Radio Roundtable with higher education consultant, Dr. Michael Walker-Jones, Harvard's Executive Director for Health and Human Rights, Dr. Natalie Alinos, and from Beacon Hill, Representative Jeff Roy, as we the people celebrate the journey of America toward a more perfect union. Welcome to a more perfect union. I am Nick Remesong. And joining me this week, our radio roundtable of regulars with higher education consultant, Dr. Michael Walker-Jones, and Bob and Stavrula McQuarrie, and also our station manager, Peter J. Yay. Yes. Good morning, everyone. <laughs> I'm bringing my enthusiasm. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> Following the horrific tragedy of Evaldi, Texas, the people have rallied and protested. The people have screamed and shouted, enough. The people have spoken. Thoughts and prayers are not what victims and their families seek. Congress seemingly has begun the work of producing some legislation. A final bill might be ready for a vote in late July. Will it make a difference? This is what we will be discussing today. Now this week, we're also very happy to have with us Michael Cox. He is the Firearm Safety Training Coordinator for Safe Insight. You can visit their website at safeinsight.net for complete gun safety information. Good morning, Michael. Good morning. Thank you for having me. Thank you for joining us today. Particularly, uh, it's a little early where you are right now, I assume. <laughs> it is. <laughs> All right. We appreciate you making the effort to join us today. Uh, and as I mentioned, we have Bob McQuarrie and Stavrula McQuarrie. Also, uh, Bob is a veteran. And also, he is the lead gun instructor uh, in a police department, local police department. And they'll be joining us. And we're going to have a pretty spirited discussion today, I would assume. With that said, I'd like to kick it off. Uh, that I would also say that our tiny little radio station here in Franklin is now bi-coastal, officially. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, feeling, I'm feeling big, Nick. I'm feeling big. <laughs> well, <laughs> that's, that's good. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. It's not a chair. Yes. <laughs> but uh, I also uh, have given a lot of thought to just uh, what's been going on with uh, progress, hoped for progress, obviously, in Congress. And and uh, it's going to be interesting to see where all of this falls out uh, come end of July when we have real legislation uh, to take a look at. And I would like to have seen the legislation play a little more strength towards gun safety, gun instruction, gun, you know, the kind of things that support a robust and solid culture uh, in the gun community to as a way of, you know, promoting the responsibilities that go with ownership. So that's just sort of my two cents. Yeah. Um, I mean, it, everyone is going to be awaiting uh, the exact language of the uh, bill, whatever is presented. Uh, and it's going to be 
bellwether of what might be happening uh, 2024. I think it's going to be a big, big, big issue uh, exactly what will be the final look of this of any legislation that takes place. Michael, since you're new here, um, I'd like you to just, if you could, just give us um, uh, an idea of what uh, what you think of the Massachusetts gun laws and what you think might be uh, essential to any new legislation or non-essential. So I think the Massachusetts gun laws on the whole are pretty good. But that being said, I'm also going to say, I think that the gun laws across the country, for the most part, are pretty good. Where we're failing is um, enforcement of those laws. And some of these recent shootings have showed that. And uh, me and Michael had this discussion uh, recently about the people that have had these firearms committing these mass shootings. And the problem is, if you look at them, if you go through, there's been a few that have legally possessed a firearm that did this damage. But even those ones uh, fell under instances where they shouldn't have had the firearm. Uh, for instance, uh, the gentleman <clears throat> in Buffalo actually had failed. Uh, he had been committed for a psych eval, which is a red flag law in New York being one of only 19 states that has red flag laws, actually should have pulled his firearms and they didn't. So we know the result. Yeah, I think. And Actually, Bob McQuarrie, uh, the last time we discussed this, did make the point that what he deals with on the streets is mental illness. That's that's what's happening. So it's 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 a combination of just the massive information that is available second to second out there and the massive the massive just kind of hysteria. And can I, can I add a oh, yeah, please. to it? Please. Um, you know, I just I just recently went to a training and uh, I got some stats that were that would be very helpful. It's, mm -hmm. It appears that in all the studies that have been done for active shooter, it's a hundred percent mental illness. Mm -hmm. so every active shooter yeah. we have has a history of mental illness. And here's one that I didn't know. I knew that stat, but eighty percent of law enforcement shootings, meaning when an officer has to shoot somebody, regardless of the entire situation, eighty percent of law enforcement shootings. The, the person, the, the suspect, the uh, involved also has a history of mental illness. So if you're looking at that, all active shooters are mentally ill and a great deal of criminals that are committing some type of offense that you know, ends up in a police-related shooting, 80% of those people are suffering from mental illness as well. So you know, to have one conversation without the other is... You can't do it. If you're talking exactly. about active shooters, you have to talk about mental illness. And if you're talking about crime rates and violence, you have to talk about mental illness because they go hand in hand. Mm. Exactly. Yeah, I, I believe that's yeah, I believe you're right on. Well, I know you're right on that. One of the things, by the way, this is Peter J. One of the things I noticed uh, with respect to the uh, what is currently the draft proposed legislation while we're on the topic of red flag laws. The wording indicates that at the federal level, they will provide funding and support for those states that wish to implement red flag laws, uh, rather than making it anything official at the federal level. So it seems to me that given the variability across all states with respect to uh, the laws and the culture locally, that offering may yield little real progress. 
given that there may be a number of states that simply choose to ignore the offering of federal assistance and leave things as they are. That's just my takeaway. And again, this is one of the points I think that we're going to have to take a look at more closely when you know the real legislation comes down. And, and Bob, to your point, I think that, yes, uh, mental illness is a real issue. And not only is a red flag law aimed at dealing with that issue, but also finding ways of, of intervening uh, mm. prior to the fact, prior to just simply, uh, we're going to remove the guns. Mm. What can we do to help people who are, in fact, suffering uh, well in advance of what might become uh, a critical incident? Yeah, I'd like to propose that first, and I'll throw this out to the group, you can provide some assistance in helping me understand why the Congress does not see the need for a standardized, at least a standardized minimum red flag uh, set of statutes at the federal level. I'm, I'm reading that as a compromise point that both sides were willing to nod and agree to. I don't think it's anything more than that. And, and in the push and pull of trying to get something over the line, I think that's where they ended up. That's just my personal take. And if I could jump in from it, I think one of the problems that we're experiencing is, uh, is a nod to what we're talking about right here with mental illness. And I think, um, you know, Mr. McCrary makes some very valid points. And I think he would agree too. Uh, me being a retired police officer myself, we see laws all the time. Laws are great. But if you don't have the resources or uh, the want to to enforce those laws, what good did those laws do? And further, what we're trying to do is we're trying to legislate to make people feel good through this hysteria of everything that's happening that's bad. Like, well, we just need better laws. Mm. But how can you possibly legislate something that to criminals that by definition mm -hmm. don't follow the law. And, and then you've got the flip side, which is even more important, as Mr. McCurry said, is the mentally ill. If you've got the mentally ill that aren't even necessarily capable of following the law, who cares what laws you put on the books? I, I can tell you that you, you can't have a firearm if you look at me funny, but if those laws aren't enforced, what is it? What good does it do? But here's the problem, Michael. When we look at the structure of our society, we're built on a society of laws. Now, the enforcement, I give you every single credit for pointing out that enforcement is an issue. Uh, that comes down to resources as well. Uh, but we are a country of laws. And those laws set up at least the standards and, in some cases, the mores by which we're supposed to accept and uh, sort of deal with one another in that regard. And without them, uh, you know, I would propose that we still have a, a chaos, total misunderstanding, misapplication uh, or someone's whim, uh, because at the end of the day, if something happens, uh, you know, then how do you at least inform when it comes to uh, whether it's crime, whether it's punishment, whether it's a matter of, again, just sort of social justice. How do you then define that if you don't have some kind of descriptive, well, here's the way we're supposed to at least address one another. Uh, and before the group jumps on that, 
Let me also add in one thing. Let's not fall in love with the concept that mental illness, therefore, it's an easily solvable problem, uh, is at the root of this. Because I would propose to all of us here that mental illness has always been a problem in the country, and I'll grant that. But then when I ride up and down the streets of San Francisco, Los Angeles, even in Napa Valley, one of the most beautiful places I've seen recently. And I see the homeless and realize that many of those people who are out there in tents and paper shacks uh, have a mental problem. And, and some of them are out there on the street because they were kicked out of mental institutions or don't have the access to health care. Uh, so help me understand that, folks, uh, you know, that aspect of it. Well, I think uh, to start, I totally agree with you. I mean, you've got to have laws to have a society. If you don't, you've got chaos. No, nobody that I know of, not even in the, the, the gun community, calls for the stripping of all of our laws, not even all of our gun laws. But what the point is that I'm making is that if, I, if I've got all these laws on the books that A, I'm not enforcing properly as they sit there, then mm -hmm. what good does it do me to throw more laws at this problem? It, it, you know, the, the drug war has been a perfect example of this. I mean, we've, we've made all these laws and when those laws didn't work, we made more laws. It didn't accomplish anything. Our drug war problem has spiraled out of control. So we didn't accomplish anything. So my, my point is that you have to look at the laws that you have that really have some teeth and make those work for you. I don't think a lot of people uh, understand the actual ins and outs of the legal system and how it works really at the ground level. And I think that that's uh, exactly what Michael's talking about is, and, and I can speak 100%, like I, this is not a yeah. friend, I'm telling you from, from my mouth that I've been involved in many cases where DAs or you know judges just don't care about certain violations. They just don't care about certain laws and they'll ignore certain laws. Um, I've put away people with, with gun crimes and then seen them out on the street two years later. And I know that the sentence or the crime they were charged with, like let's say the minimum would be five years, but they're you know on probation in six months or a year. And you know, so I think that that's what Mike's talking about is we have these laws on the books, arrests are made, uh, and then it kind of falls apart from, from my perspective, it falls apart from there. And then you have these people that have committed these, you know, violent crimes or maybe even just different crimes that they're out again in, you know, not what the law states. The law, will, I'll give you a real quick example. I arrested a guy who broke into a house wearing body armor and I arrested him inside the house in his hands was a pillowcase that he had pulled off of the master bedroom pillow, and it was loaded with all the goodies in that house. I took him down and I arrested him right there. Now, mass law states that if you commit a felony while wearing body armor, that is a mandatory minimum 10-year sentence. Mm -hmm. He was convicted. He was found guilty and convicted of the breaking and enterings, of the receiving stolen property, of all the felonies I charged him with. But the judge just decided, and this was his exact quote, in the interest of justice, we're going to ignore the body armor. Now, I'm in the courtroom and I'm like, what do you mean? Ignore like this is a gang guy. Like this isn't a good dude. Like I know <laughs> I, I know that like this guy, you know what I mean? Like I know what's mm -hmm. going on. Yeah. I'm like, yeah. well, how do we just ignore it? Like, yes, he was wearing body armor and, and a jury of his peers 
convicted him of the felonies. This goes with the felony. If you're convicted of a felony and you were wearing body armor while committing that felony, mandatory minimum 10 years. He got two and a half years because we just ignored the body armor. So I think, Mike, tell me if I'm wrong, but that's, I believe, what you're talking about is we have all these laws in the books, but we pick and choose which ones, or not we, generally not law enforcement, but uh, you know the, the DAs, the judges, they pick and choose what they're going to look at and what they're going to ignore. And then the leftover is a lot of people are back on the streets when maybe they shouldn't be. And we all know, at least we all, I hope we all know that recidivism is a huge thing. If you get arrested, like yeah. when, I, when I'm dealing with a bad guy, I go, give me his criminal history. And it's like almost always you can see the path that led to why I'm talking to him right now. You can mm-hmm. see the multiple different crimes yeah. of the similar nature. So it's like they, you know, nobody gets fixed. They just kind of keep reoccurring the same problem over and over again. And we just keep putting a bandaid on it and putting a bandaid on it and putting a bandaid on it until it becomes a dramatically giant problem. And then we all say, let's make new laws. It's like the laws that are in place, many of them would have served us correctly if they were actually executed at the right time, which is, I think, a big problem. It's not the only problem. If I could just jump in quickly, this is Chris sure. Wolf here, and I, obviously you can tell I'm not from around here originally, but I'm li- li- living in Franklin now, a local author. And, um, he's originally from Cleveland. That's what General he's troublemaker. Right. <laughs> um, but, and I appreciate the conversation, I really do, but uh, I would just like bring us back to the original premise, which was how do we prevent another Uvalde shooting? So what would what would be the, from, from either uh, Bob or Stavrula or Michael, what would be the number one thing you would like to do to see done to prevent uh, another tragedy of that nature and scale? For me, again, it's, you know, and I'm sorry, I want to clarify, is Bob Steverula, correct? Yes. Bob? Yeah. Okay, so uh, Bob, uh, to Bob's point, Bob, Bob was spot on what he was saying, or, or spot on summarizing what I was saying too, like that revolving door that we deal with is frustrating. And that's not just with the gun tragedies, that's with every kind of law in the books. That revolving door needs to be closed so that when people commit crimes and get caught doing them, they need to be acted upon. And and I don't think that that's the the be all end all, because, again, I don't think you can legislate uh, the mental illness and the criminals. What we need to do is is work on, again, just enforcing what we have on the books and realizing. And I know this this is not going to be a popular opinion, but you've got to realize you can't stop everything. We are going to have some tragedies. Hmm. And and that's not to say, so we shouldn't try to do anything. I'm just saying, we've got to be realistic too. You can't stop every tragedy and because you have one doesn't mean you're failing necessarily. And one of the points I find fascinating, I hear argued all the time is, well, yeah, but this is a United States problem. This gun problem is a United States problem. We're the only ones that have all these mass shootings. We have all this. Well, the first argument that comes up from that usually is yeah but other places have other other types of killings people running people over with cars using knives that are not heard about as much on the news but what i find fascinating most people don't know the united states everybody thinks ranks number one in mass shootings but if you look per capita per per million people the number of deaths in mass shootings the united states uh actually ranks number 11 in the world so thank you bob so we're actually lower than some other places. And, and the ones that jump out at me that I think are crazy is number seven, Switzerland. Number three, France. And I hear France brought up all the time as this model place. They're, they're almost half again the amount of deaths per million people in mass shootings. 
as the United States. So this isn't a United States problem. This is just a problem with society in general. Uh, uh, but wait a minute. Let's 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 you know one of the things that I enjoy being an academic is using statistics and doing research. Mm. Okay, so let's finish the let's finish the statement, Michael. Okay, uh, in terms of ranking, in terms of mass shootings. All right, give me the definitions then, if you've got the data there. Give me the definitions for those other 10, 10 countries that are in front of us. Are these random mass shootings? Are these part of criminal activities? Are they part of terrorist activities? Okay, what is what is the sort of background of why there is this ranking and who is number one and why? It's, it's officially the annual death rate per million people from mass public shootings. So um, it, I think mass public shootings is your key. It is mass public shootings, and that's and that's what we're dealing but with. But you don't here. have any other. But there's no other uh, information other than mass public shootings. So we don't know whether it was a terrorist shooting or whether it was gang related. Uh, Excuse me, real quick, Michael. I'm sorry, I'm going to interrupt. Aren't all mass shootings a terrorist act? Uh, you know that now. That's a wonderful question. Uh, I wouldn't call. Yeah. Uh, uh, I wouldn't call necessarily the shooting in uh, Sandy Hook uh, a terrorist act especially when we're talking about mental illness. Uh, I think that that was a deranged young man uh, who absolutely had lost touch with reality. The perpetrator in Uvalde, I wouldn't necessarily call that a terrorist act. Again, I would, I would define that young man as someone who just literally had a mental, total mental and social breakdown. So no, I wouldn't define them all as terrorist shootings. Okay. Uh, one thing that gets screwed up all the time is the difference between an active shooter and perhaps a gun-related murder or a violent crime involving firearms. I right now, the buzzword is active shooter. So if I walk, if I just, if I say this interview is over for me and I walk outside and I just cap my neighbor while he's taking out the trash right now, <laughs> that will actually be, I guarantee you, that will be released immediately on the media the very first thing is it'll be an active shooter in franklin mm. it's not it's not an active shooter the definition of an active shooter is a person actively involved in killing or attempting to kill as many people as possible in a certain space that's like the textbook federal definition so right. but right now if 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 there is a gang related assault in boston right now it will be on every single channel that is an active shooter and it's not so you have to understand there's a very there's a strong difference between violent crime and murder and active shooters. And I think that right. that's where a lot of people spin, you know, uh, they spin it out of control. They, they, they don't quite understand what the difference is. And, and you have to understand the differences, because if you're trying to solve one, it might not be the same as solving another, meaning like gang violence might be solved quite easily with when you arrest someone for a gang-related activity or illegal possession of a firearm, you put them in jail for a long period of time. Like th that might not have anything to do with active shooters. There are very few active shooters that are gang-related. However, most people in America who are shot and shot and killed are gang members. And that is the activity. So when you're trying to reduce death tolls by firearms, and you just kind of think of everything as the same, you're never going to land on your mark correctly. You have to actually go, okay, what do we want to do? Do we want to reduce the amount of gun-related deaths in America? 
or do we want to go after go after active shooters? And the, the way that you go after those two individuals or those two different groups is different. You just can't mm-hmm. blanket policy that. Mm-hmm. So I, you know, I couldn't agree more, Michael. Uh, yeah. uh, 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 Bob, I'm sorry. Well, Michael too. I couldn't agree more. Uh, since 1992, uh, I've been a part of what's called the Brotherhood of Peace. Uh, and our focus was strictly on gang-related crime, gang-related violence, and gang-related gun uh, uh, use of guns since 1992. It started with a friend of mine by the name of Steve Novocik. Uh, For those of you who are interested, let me throw this little uh, quip out there for him. There was an HBO special uh, dealing with gangs in Little Rock. Uh, Please look it up. I think it's still out there. I think they still stream it. Uh, And it's about the community that I lived in when uh, uh, when I lived in Little Rock and how the crime rate at one point in time, Little Rock and North Little Rock combined was the number one place in the country for gun violence and killings in the country. And if you look at the size of Little Rock and North Little Rock, Uh, you know, it's like a quarter of the size of Washington, D.C. So we were able to lower uh, that violence and the killings and the use of guns. And you're absolutely right, Bob, not by laws. The laws were on the books already, but it was going out with education, going out, talking to the young people, going out, showing them, uh, you know, the destructive (laughs) power of guns. Um, And it was, I think, Uh, That effort that ended up getting us uh, away from being number one in terms of killings in the country. Uh, So I couldn't agree with you more. Uh, And I think what happens is that we get to a point where we try to look one dimensionally uh, Mm. and we look at guns and then we try to legislate around guns. But again, I've said this many times on this program. We don't have enough in terms of access to health care, because if we understand that mental health is a major, major uh, concern in this country, and yet we limit people's access to uh, mental health care, or we throw them out of hospitals, or we do not address the idea that everyone ought to have access to health care, then we're not we're contributing then to the other problems of society whether it's homelessness, whether it's gun violence, et cetera. Your thoughts, folks? Well, I think what we're looking at is a couple of different. Uh, Bob's point uh, about how it's reported, and the key word here is reported. So, of course, we're looking at the media. Uh, That's probably a a pretty far-ranging and uh, very interesting topic for later, is how they report it. So there has to be something, maybe there's guidelines that need to be set up with the press. That's something else. And then, of course, uh, what Michael Walker Jones spoke of, Mr. Walker Jones, Dr. Walker Jones spoke of, is the community involvement. I don't know how particularly a, a you know a, a current uh, police officer and a former police officer feel about that sort of thing. Um, how would you view a community involvement as a deterrent or as uh, something that uh, ameliorates this sort of issue? Do you invite that? Do you appreciate it? Or is it? Does it get in the way? Well, I'll jump in on that. Um, I I think that this was always my stance, and it's probably not the community involvement you meant, but I'm going to tell you how I feel about it. Um, my stance has always been: I I want every citizen that wants a firearm to have one, if 
they are willing to take the time to get training and learn how to be good with that. I don't want every Joe Blow walking out and buying a firearm. Um, my my distinction has always been uh, most, you know, because of federal law and stuff and the, the Constitution, most people are allowed to go buy a firearm without any training and keep it in their home. And I say, knock yourself out. If you don't want to get training, you want to put your family in danger like that on the firearm you don't know how to use in your home, knock yourself out. But you're not going to carry concealed in my community unless you understand how to do it. That being said, here in Washington State, our laws are terrible for that. To get a concealed carry license, you simply go fill out an application and wait 30 days, and then you can carry a concealed firearm. You don't need any training at all. And, and I know a lot of the country is going to the constitutional carry now. And as much as I, I, I love the idea of people being able to have the guns, I want them to have training behind that. I'd like to ask a, a couple of uh, questions. So it's kind of a compound question, uh, all of which relates to training. And so this is this is got some subtlety with it, but I think it's important that we we try to to focus on that. My very limited experience uh, with guns. One of the first radio stations I worked at, you know, radio stations and their transmitters and towers are obviously in big open fields. This particular radio station, when I was just starting out, had a legitimate gun range as part of the open field, big burn behind it, targets were set up, et cetera. And because it was at the radio station, sometimes the staffers would be out there um, practicing. Uh, and of course, if anybody was working with the targets, doing anything on the field, it was guns down, out of hands, nobody anywhere near a firearm. And they would refresh the targets, do what they did. They had a protocol. And so they all were doing the right thing. And there were never any incidents, never any concerns. It was just something that was part of the neighborhood. Uh, so the bigger question I have is, uh, both of you are expert in training. The question I have is, uh, and it gets, now I'm gonna tie it back to red flag laws. People come with different expectations and attitudes about guns. When you first meet them, do you take away an impression as to why somebody is interested in the training. First of all, it's good that they're interested in training. That's great. And does anyone pop up once in a great while that you have any concerns about in terms of what their motivation for gun ownership is? And does that begin to point the way towards a red flag of any kind? Um, I don't think that would happen often, but I think it's a fair question. Um, and then, of course, the other problem with red flag laws in general is you're asking for a law that predicts the future. And, you know, in our society where we have guilt and innocence, innocence is presumed, uh, you can't prove the future as you would need to prove guilt. So uh, red flag laws carry with it the difficulty of making the choice to exercise them. Anyway, rewinding back to my original question of do you ever see anyone come before you where you get some strange apprehension about those people? And then finally, in the course of training, do you see people tend to generate a certain level of, of new respect for the firearm and the power that it wields uh, in the course of their training? In other words, they become acclimated to realizing that they're now part of something that they feel responsible for all the more. So, so that's a, that's actually, I think a side benefit of good training. All right. So I got to break this up into two different things here. Exactly. <laughs> the way you said it here. 
There is gun safety, which is what you see at a lot of like well thought out and well disciplined ranges where mm-hmm. like yeah, everyone puts their gun down. We're going to put targets up. We're going to do that. You can belong to a gun club your entire life and be excellent with safety and be an excellent marksman and know your firearms inside and out and actually never understand self-defense law because there's mm-hmm. many states where they are not combined. You have your license to carry firearms. You have your license to own firearms. And then you never, ever got trained in actual self-defense, lethal force, all that stuff. I have family members that are in this exact category where interesting, where if, if they wanted to to use a firearm, they would be like incredibly good with that firearm. But if I said to them, hey, tell me, you know, tell me a little bit about self-defense law and how it's applied. They'll be like, Duh, what? Like, so understanding gun safety and range safety is super important. I think that's that is something you cannot ignore. But understanding self-defense laws and how to actually defend yourself legally and physically is a whole other argument I'm not even going to get into right now. But mm-hmm. just understanding how to be legally compliant during a self-defense situation is another set of training. And they don't go hand in hand. They Maybe they should, but they certainly don't. And a lot of times we focus on the gun safety and not enough on the self-defense as shooters and as instructors in order to get people their license. Mm. So that that's one point. And then I'll just, I'll hit up the second point. And then I won't say a word for a while. So you guys can all get in there, but <laughs> I have trained Marines, cops and civilians for the better part of my entire adult life. And there was without question, people that do make me nervous uh, on occasion. Mm. One of the things that has made me be able to kind of go, okay, well, uh, all right, I'm going to, I'm going to still do this. So I'm going to still go forward is number one, the background checks of law enforcement. And then the other thing is the background check in the licensing system in Massachusetts. And whenever I teach a class in Massachusetts, you have to pr- provide me with a firearms license, meaning you've already passed all your backgrounds in your chief of police, where you live, who not only goes off your local, your state and your federal background, but also just the stuff that never even lands on an actual background search that chief can look it up and see in the in-house. If that chief has decided that you are legally competent to own and to carry a firearm, then I go, okay, I'll train you. Even if I think you're a little bit of a wind nut, I will still go with the training because you've already been signed off on. And, you know, my opinion doesn't necessarily matter as much as the person that did the entire background and has all that information. But yeah, those hairs on the back of your neck do come up from time to time, but mm-hmm. but I don't ever train anyone that doesn't have a firearms license. So I think in other areas of the country where you don't have that, you don't know, like, geez, I don't know who the hell I'm training. That uh, that can definitely cause a much more dramatic pause than 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 my experience. So well, that seems to be a reasoned position. If they've yeah. passed a background check and it's a robust background check specifically. Um, that there's little that you can do once they're licensed. Uh, in fact, I think you'd be doing them a disservice if you didn't train them because training them is your opportunity to take whatever attitude they bring before you and perhaps make some improvements, make some better appreciations uh, that let them realize the gravity of what it is that they're doing and perhaps mitigate some of what their first suppositions might have been. So I'd yeah, see, I see that as a good thing. And let me uh, and let me throw out this, uh, uh, you know, what I think is a very interesting story about uh, Michael Cox and I uh, when we met. We're sitting in a uh, uh, in a cigar bar, and it was uh, uh, in Napa Valley, 
And we had a real interesting audience around us, including my daughter and my son-in-law. And Mike and I engaged in this dialogue about uh, firearms and about uh, some of the laws, about some of the incidences that had taken place. And we had been talking probably for about 15, 20 minutes uh, and other people in the room were starting to engage in our conversation. Um, and it was when Mike and I hit upon the uh, the first major issue that he and I totally agreed on, which is this concept of training, gun ownership and the responsibility of training uh, and having encountered uh, Bob and Stavrul, uh, you know, uh, I, I also threw in there the concept of training in uh, active, well, not active shooter, but uh, but in situations where you're trying to defend yourself, uh, and it's one of the trainings I know that uh, that Bob does um, uh, at the uh, uh, at the club that I belong to, uh, that I'm looking forward to taking. And as we got into that conversation, I think my uh, my daughter said to uh, to us, "Well, I shouldn't it be that people have to." train and retrain. I, as a teacher, have to do professional development, always honing my skills uh, oh. as a teacher. And why shouldn't people who own a gun? And that's when Michael uh, said, well, I started a business with that in mind, and I do that training for free. The whole room went quiet. And suddenly people were coming up to Mike, well, give me your business card. What do you do? <laughs> and you do gun training for free? And, and he said, yes, I think it should be, uh, you know, that people should have access to this and you shouldn't have to, uh, you know, depend upon a person's ability to pay. Uh, and Michael, you can pick it up from there. I, I know at that point I was not only uh, uh, enthused, but also wanted to follow up more with conversation about, you know, with you about that. Right. Yeah. And I appreciate you putting that out there. Um, and I want to be clear, I, I don't want to make it sound like, you know, I don't ever get paid to train. Obviously, I've got a business to run. I get paid. Where I make my money is on the people that already are obligated to take training. Like uh, California is my big market. You you got to take eight hours of training there. So uh, what I did is I parlayed that. What I had done as a firearms instructor uh, in law enforcement, um, and Bob, Bob would probably appreciate this, I realized that our guys aren't getting enough time at the range. And so I don't know how it is over there for you guys here in Washington state, we get two range days a year. So I get two eight hour days with my officers and I've got to spend the first three to four hours of that in a classroom, talking about the safety rules, reminding them how to clear malfunctions, uh, reminding them how to perform speed reloads, tactical reloads. So it's a lot of classroom administrative stuff. So I really get like four or five hours of shooting time with them twice a year. That is not much when you're carrying every single day. So Mm -hmm. What I did is um, I started building for my officers originally uh, some courses for them to do online. They were very crude at the time. They were basically PowerPoints, but I built some online courses for them to do in the inner room between our range days. And I would I had it set up so that I could verify they had done whatever information they needed to do. So that by the time we got to range day, I had eight hours of time with them because we had already gone through the classroom stuff in an online format. And then as I, as I started you know, retired from law enforcement and doing my own thing, I thought, why not parlay this into the civilian world? So I ended up building these courses out that actually um, 
they not only teach you safety, but they teach you marksmanship and all that. And my number one, I had so many detractors at first that said, there's no way you can't learn how to shoot a gun online. And to that, I say, <laughs> with the nearly like 500 students a year, we pushed through California. Many of them were having trouble shooting the 70% qualification the sheriffs had in place for CCW holders. Um, since my company has been working down there in Southern California in Orange, LA, Ventura, all the major ones down there, um, and like I said, pushed about 500 students a year through. Uh, for seven years of doing this in Southern California, we have never had a student not only fail the qualification, we've never had a student shoot less than 90% on the qualification after taking our online course. Mm -hmm. So um, that was, yeah. thank you. And so that was my, my whole point in doing this is that I wanted to get I wanted to get real training out to people. And, and now if you read our Google reviews and stuff, people rave about the training because it, it really allows them to learn rather than just be talked to by an instructor and told do X, Y, and Z. They're actually able to back up, get this information. And, and it's in a highly interactive course now. It's not just PowerPoints like it used to be back in the day. Um, but at any rate, so that's, that's what I did. And to that point to what Michael was saying, um, so I also took that and I partnered with a bunch of local law enforcement agencies because, as I mentioned, in Washington State, there's zero training requirement. So now um, I give away, it's completely free training. It's a couple hour course that goes over exactly what we talked about earlier. It goes over self-defense laws in Washington State, along with the basic gun safety and that kind of thing. And so now I've got multiple law enforcement agencies that hand out my business card with their concealed carry applications because they're going, look, I know you don't need training, but this company gives it for free online. Why not take it? You know, Nick, we're covering an awful lot of ground, and I just feel like we have so much more to go. This conversation is going to go well past the uh, the allotted time. And, and so rather than try to fit everything into the next 15 minutes, I think we're going to do a part two. So for now, I think what we want to do is say goodbye and return next week to continue our discussion. And for Michael Cox at Safe Insight, Bob McQuarrie, Dr. Michael Walker-Jones, and Nick Remesong, and I'm Peter Jay. Thank you for listening. We'll be back next week with more on this important topic. Until then, if you have an opinion, you want to share it with us, let us know at info at franklin.tv. That's info at franklin.tv. We'd love to hear from you. So until next week, thanks for joining us on our More Perfect Union journey. This is Franklin Public Radio. <music>